Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. <laughs> We're going to be formal today. Thank you. I'm Joe, uh, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, um, thanks for coming this morning. If you're watching online, my hunch is a number of people are watching online this morning. Uh, good morning to you as well. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into the second message in our series on the book of Hebrews. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would encourage us this morning as we consider the truths of Hebrews chapter 1, that we would have a greater glimpse an awareness of how awesome and mighty and incredible Jesus Christ is. Pray it would change everything in our lives as we, we just have a greater and clearer view. Lord, build our faith today. Lord, pray especially for those watching online that you would encourage them and bless them in just a really tangible way through this sermon this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the, the title today is, is the centerpiece of our faith. The, the series is called Jesus is Better, and today is the centerpiece of our faith. Before I forget, if you didn't have a chance to pick one of these up, you can hold your hand high and one will be taken to you. This is a Hebrews journal that takes you to the book of Hebrews, and then you can write notes. If you'd like one and you haven't gotten one, just raise your hand and Rodney will make sure you get one. Well, last week... Jason kicked off our series in Hebrews. He did an introduction and overview of the entire book. So I highly recommend that you go back and watch that or listen to it at some point. Rodney, we've got a hand up front here. I feel like an auctioneer, too. We've got a couple in the back. Can I hear 30? Um, but seriously, come and, and listen to that. Take some time. It will, it will help you get your bearings. The book of Hebrews is an incredible book. But it can be a little confusing to people when they're reading it. One just huge tip that has helped me tremendously in understanding the book of Hebrews, rather than reading it and thinking of it like a letter primarily, uh, many scholars believe it's more written as a sermon. So it was actually originally written to be read aloud. So if you read it, not so much as a letter like the Apostle Paul would have written, but as a sermon that is really driving home um, some key points to really have us encounter the Lord and be transformed by him. It, it will help you read. Today we're going to read and consider Hebrews chapter 1, um, verses, Hebrews chapter 1, the whole way through chapter 2, verse 3. And I want to, at the outset, I want to read the whole entire passage that we're going to consider today. And as I read it, I want you to remember what Jason said last week, that the original recipients were, were under the, the kind of the threat of persecution. Some were being pulled away to even um, no longer trust in Jesus. And, and so there was a lot of pressure upon them. There was the internal pressures to turn away from the Lord. There was external pressures from the Roman government and false teachers. And so it's into this that the author, who we do not know who it is, but what we do know is he was a, a friend of Timothy's, he was a pastor, and he's writing with great passion and clarity to help a group of struggling Christians really center 
on Jesus. So I'm going to read, and you listen and imagine and consider, if you were in those cir- their circumstances, what this would be like to be on the receiving end of this. Your, your faith is starting to waver, and then this comes in the mail. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to the, to the angels, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard. So that's dense. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and we're going to kind of unpack it this morning. But the whole point of chapter 1 going into chapter 2 is to center the original recipient's attention and affection on the greatness of Jesus. And that's what we need more than anything else this morning. This might be a little bit of an old-fashioned thing, but how many of you, uh, and I'm not thinking primarily of high school students and college students, though you might surprise me, how many of you have a centerpiece on your dining room table or on a fireplace mantle? Okay, we've got more hands than you. Look around, high school students, there's more than, more than you think. Um, so a centerpiece is the centerpiece. It's literally what the name intends. It's, it's to be the focal point of 
what's at the center of the dining room table, or what's on the fireplace mantle. And it's to draw our attention and our focus to the very center object. Well, the reason I entitled this message um, the centerpiece of our faith is because Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of our faith. He is to be our focal point. He is what the author of Hebrews is trying to draw our attention to. And the more we, we see him, the more we believe he is who he says he is in the Bible, the more our faith will grow, the more we will be strengthened, the more joy and peace we will experience. No matter what is going on in our lives. So this brings us to the first point. Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith and hope. Look at verse 1 again. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This Son Jesus, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If all you get out of this this morning are the truths that are in verses 1 through 4, it's enough to change your life forever. So we're going to kind of untangle them. One of the things I think can be overlooked immediately and just sort of assumed is what what the author mentions at the beginning of verse 1, that God spoke, that God is a speaking God, that the God who made heaven and earth decided to speak, decided to reveal himself. He didn't have to do that. He could have created the world and gone on to create another world and left us to figure it out. But instead, he decided to reveal himself to the people that he made. And that's why verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So we have the Old Testament. We have the, the, the law and the prophets. That is God speaking. God spoke. But then he says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So God speaks. God has spoken. And the final word is Jesus and what he has done and the fact that he will one day return. And so we have in our Bibles the 66 books that are preserved by the Holy Spirit that teach us all we need to know to have a relationship with the living God. And not only that, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, empowering you to obey the things that are in the Bible and helping you to understand the things that are in the Bible. So we want to thank God that he is a speaking God. 
Now, the author is going to go and draw our attention to Jesus, the centerpiece. Remember the dining room table or the, the fireplace? You have this focal point. He wants us to fix our attention, our affection, our mind on the centerpiece of our faith, who is Jesus. And here's kind of the crazy thing, especially this time of year. A lot of times, Christians or non-Christians will use the beginning of a new year to make some goals and change. And some people call them resolutions. Some people are, don't want to use the term resolution, but they, they use it as a, as a point. Things are going to be different. I'm going to eat different. I'm going to do some things different. I may, uh, if I'm a Christian, I may have a Bible reading plan. Uh, I'm going to try to change these areas. And usually we have this impossible list that is, you know, by February, it, it's over. And we feel bad. Then by June, we, we really don't care. We forget. And then we do the same thing a whole other year. Well, here's, here's a, a thing that a truth in the Bible that I think we often miss as Christians. The primary way to grow in our faith, which will inevitably change us from the inside out, is fixating our mind and thoughts and intent, attention and affections on Jesus. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we see Jesus in all his greatness and glory, the more we will be changed. See, often we go the opposite. We think, well, I just got to think about myself more. I got to think about the things I shouldn't do and the things I should do. And we get kind of in that trap. And we miss the joy and the peace and the, the wonder of actually believing and trusting in this glorious king who came to earth. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants them to do. Now, there are commands in Hebrews. There are warnings in Hebrews. So all those things have their place. But what you and I need the most this morning is a greater glimpse of Jesus. I'm 100% convinced of that. I'm sure you may have heard the quote from the, the famous Robert Murray McShane quote where he says, for every one look at yourself, Take 10 looks at Jesus. For every one look inside, look 10 outside. If that is your New Year's resolution, you will be different by the end of 2022. You will be changed if you think, I'm going to take 10 looks. I'm going to look far more at the person and work of Jesus than I'm going to look at myself. You will be surprisingly different. So I would encourage you, to do so. You will grow. Just like the original recipients had internal pressures and external pressures that were happening in the world around them that really choked their faith and tempted them to renounce their faith at times, you and I are no different. We have maybe different pressures, but they're nonetheless pressures that will seek to draw us away. And the encouragement is to ask the Lord to help you to, to get to know him more. To really spend time with Jesus more as we embark in a new year. And ask friends to help you, to, to encourage you to keep spending time with Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. As you do, you will be transformed. So what we're going to do now is is there are a number of truths 
in verses 2, 3, and 4. And I, I just kind of pulled them out. And what I want you to do, if you have these journals, you can jot down some notes. But later on, I want you to just spend time thinking about maybe one a day, one of these incredible truths about Jesus. And, and if all you did this year was grow in your awareness of the greatness of Jesus, that's a good year. That is a great year. That is a life-transforming year. So here they are kind of in rapid fire. They're all found in verses 2, 3, and 4. You can look them up yourself. But first is, we're looking at the centerpiece, the focal point. Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. He's the one God the Father has chosen. The universe is yours. Every part of of the universe viruses we can't see he's in charge of armies we can see he's in charge of natural disasters he is over he is the heir of all things he's the one through whom the world was created he made it all Jesus was the agent that God made the world, that God the Father made the world through God the Son, and he made it all out of nothing. No materials, no raw materials, no, no paint, no wood. No materials whatsoever, even in their basis form. Out of nothing, Jesus made all things. You can trust him. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the representation and the, 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 if you think of the sun and the sunbeams radiating from the sun, he, he's the one who's showing us what God is like. He's the radiance of God's honor and glory. Maybe another way to say it, this is how Jesus said it. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you experience Jesus' love and forgiveness, you experience the love and forgiveness of the Father. If you experience the, the patience of Jesus, you've experienced the patience of the Father. He's, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He is emanating what God is like. Jesus is the exact imprint of God the Father. He, God the Father stamped his imprint on Jesus when Jesus came to earth. Fully God, fully man. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the entire universe. I mean, let's start small. Think, he upholds Indiana County and the state of Pennsylvania. That's a big task. None of us can do that. He upholds the entire United States. That's a big task that no one can do but Jesus. He upholds the entire continent of North America. No one can do that. He upholds the entire globe. That's an impossible task. But that's not what the passage says. It says he upholds the whole universe by the power of his word. If he does that, 
You can trust him for your world and your pressures and the things that are happening and swirling around in our lives today. You can trust him. It's interesting, right at the beginning here, there's a, a, a verse that can just seem like a small thing where it points out that, that Jesus is the purification for our sins in verse 3. You can read that and, and move on. But what you'll find out as you study the book of Hebrews, the, the truths that we're looking at here briefly in verses 1 through 4 are really going to be talked about over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews, particularly the reality that Jesus is the purification for our sins. Jesus is the great high priest who paid for all of our sins once for all. So no matter what you have done, no matter how evil or wicked it might have been, if you turn from it and trust it in Jesus, he washes it away with his shed blood. Only Jesus can do that. No one else in the universe can do that. No amount of self-help can do that. No amount of behavior modification can do that. Only Jesus can purify sins. He alone did that. When he hung and bled and died on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God that we all deserved. He took it upon himself. Our sins were credited to him. His righteousness, when we trust in him, is covered and credited to us. And so we make this exchange with Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is great at showing how huge and significant and important this is. Last week, Jason talked quite a bit about the, the Old Testament. And it, there, there were shadows of what was to come. So there, was, there were ways to atone for sin. The problem was they weren't permanent. There was a place where we, the people of God could go, but only the high priest could go once a year. And when he went, he had to pay for his own sins. He had to have some provision. See, Jesus radically transformed it all. That doesn't mean the Old Testament is bad. doesn't mean that the Old Testament shouldn't be studied and read because it's God's Word. I think one way to look at it and think about it is think about... Um, the automobile. Think about um, the Model T that Henry Ford created through the assembly line. If we lived when that was invented, we'd think, this is a great car. I don't have to ride a horse anymore. I don't have to walk anymore. This is really good. And it was really good. But this morning, you wouldn't want to be driving a Model T to church. See, what, what happens from the old to the new is the, the, the progression of God's revelation unfolds. And so what is good in and of itself is replaced by, by something that is better. And Jesus is better. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He's the ultimate way that we can be made right with God. Another thing that we can miss as you're reading verse 3 is the significance of this fact that Jesus after he made purification for sin he sat down at the right hand of God of the majesty on high you just read that and move on to the next verse well the point of that is he was enthroned as king 
risen from the grave, sin-conquering, risen, exalted Jesus is seated at the right hand, the place of favor from God the Father. He's the eternal King who is there forever and one day will return. That's who you pray to. You pray to the King of the universe. He alone is superior to all angels. If you read in the Old or New Testament, often when an angel appears in all their glory, humans were tempted to worship and bow down to them. Angels worship Jesus. They bow to Jesus. And then it says at the end that that his name encapsulates who he is. Jesus is the unique Son of God. He's one who is put on an eternal throne. His name itself, Jesus, means Savior, Rescuer. The reason I'm spending so much time with this is because I think we, we have this tendency, I have this tendency to just say, well, tell me what I should do. Tell me how I should change. Tell me how I can be a better parent, how I can be a better husband, how I can be a better worker. Tell me how I can do that. How can I be a better friend? They're not bad questions. But the more you do what we just did and gaze upon Jesus, the centerpiece of our faith, and really believe him as he's described in the Bible, do you know what will happen? You will be a better parent. You will be a better spouse. You will be a better worker. You will be a better friend not just to your friends, but to complete strangers. Because you have this great view and vision of this glorious king who loves you dearly. Look at verse 3 and 4 again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We have to center our faith on Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will help us. Ask him to help you. When I was a senior at IUP, I decided to blow a bunch of money and take a ceramics class. I was not an art major and I am not artistic. So now me looking back at that decision, it was probably a bad one. But I took the class nonetheless. And if you've ever taken ceramics, um, the reason I took it, I just wanted cool coffee mugs. So I spent way too much money. Sorry, Dad. My dad spent a lot of money too um, making coffee mugs that look terrible. They're real thick and have crooked handles. But what I learned is a pottery wheel is spinning around, and the way to make pottery is you have to, with great skill, center the clay in the very center of the wheel as it spins around. And what I learned is that is much easier said than done, to really focus and fix. Because what happens if you don't do that, it gets off center really quick, and you go to pull out the clay, and it just spins out. So at best, you have this wonky, crooked bowl or coffee mug. That's at best. At worst, it starts to spin around out of control, and it just flies right off the wheel. 
Well, we're not too much different than that. If our faith is off-center, we're trusting in the wrong thing, not the person and work of Jesus. We, we start to get a little wonky in our, our faith and our understanding of the Lord. If we get way off-center and reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, we can go out to sea very far. So we have to stay centered on Jesus. For every one look at ourselves, take ten looks at Jesus. We are doing this series for about 14 weeks, which for some people sounds like, well, that's a lot, and for others, um, it sounds like, wow, we're, we're just scratching the surface. I would be of the, the camp that we're just scratching the surface. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up the pace because in this next section of Hebrews, what, what the author's going to do is compare Jesus to angels. And he's going to make the case basically by quoting the Old Testament, primarily the book of Psalms, also the book of Deuteronomy, um, and the book of 2 Samuel to show that in comparison... Jesus is far greater than any angel that God has ever used or created. And maybe for you and I, we, we might be thinking, well, angel worship is not really maybe a thing that I'm, I'm distracted by or tempted by. Why, why would the author spend so much time? Well, one of the reasons the author, author spends so much time is because in the Bible, um, particularly in the New Testament, there are two references that, that indicate when Moses received the law, angels were the agent that God used to give them the law. And the whole purpose of Hebrews is to show that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant has been replaced and surpassed and fulfilled by Jesus, the bringer of the New Covenant. And so he's, he's comparing the, the greater and lesser. So for those of you who like homework, spend time going down every road of the Psalms that are quoted um, in, in this, this passage and the book of Deuteronomy and 2 Samuel. We're going to kind of hit it in hyperdrive, and then we're going to slow down at the end of the last uh, three verses of chapter 2. So what he's going to do, he's going he's to quote basically seven sections of the Old Testament, Five are going to be pro-Jesus' superiority to angels. Two are going to be just kind of about angels, also showing that they are inferior to Jesus. So point two, Jesus is far more than a messenger. An angel can be translated messenger. He's, he's far more than that. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Answer, none of them. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's kind of the, the mic drop moment. Like, all the angels that God ever made had to worship Jesus, not after he conquered sin and death, but even in his infant form, because he was fully God and fully man. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, angels have this transient nature. They respond to God's assignment and they submit to God's assignment. But of the Son, verse 8, he says, your throne, 
O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. If you know anything about the Old Testament and have read anything about the kings, you'll know that none of them fit this description. So there has to be a king who, one, is perfect, which the Old Testament knows nothing of. King David sinned royally. King Solomon sinned royally. You can go down the list. And all of them died. This description is one of a king who would reign forever. Jesus is the only one who conquered death and now is exalted as the king who will live forever. And he is completely righteous. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's no comparison to King Jesus. Verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens were made by Jesus out of nothing. But even those things, they will perish. But you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end. Even the world as we know it one day will come to an end. And God will make a new heavens and a new earth as it talks about in the book of Revelation. And Jesus will still be there. He will not have changed at all. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I have made your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer again is none. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, the angels have their place. It's not their fault. They just have a specific role. And part of their specific God-given design is to prepare the way for you and I and generations to come to inherit salvation, to trust in Jesus as Lord and King and Savior. There's a lot of truth in these passages. But it's important to, to think, well, so what? What, what? Why does this matter at all? What's the big deal? And that's where he transitions, the author transitions in chapter 2. He wants us to know all of this matters. All of this is vital and essential for our present day faith. It is a big deal to know and believe in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third point. Jesus is our only hope for this life and what is to come. See, the, all the truth in chapter 1 is meant to drive at a response. The author to Hebrews, uh, I think you can, Jason made a, a great case last week to, to prove that it wasn't the Apostle Paul. Whoever it was, though, 
was someone of Paul's caliber in intellect and passion and a pastoral heart for sure. This is another gifted man that the Lord raised up. And as a skilled preaching pastor, the, this author, whoever they are, whoever he is, he didn't just present these grand truths without driving the point home. So chapter 2 begins with answering the so what question. Why does this matter? Look at verses 1 through 3. Because all this is true, because Jesus is King and Lord and eternal, seated at the right hand of the Father, the radiance of His glory, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. If we get our minds around the truths that we just looked at briefly, we must pay attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message, the good news of Jesus declared by the angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard. We must not lose sight of this gospel hope of this incredible reality. There is a way to be saved, to be rescued by God himself. And it only comes through Jesus, through trusting in him. And what you're going to see in Hebrews is there are a number of warning passages. Not to discourage followers of Christ, but to encourage followers of Christ. Keep trusting. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep putting your faith in him. Keep spending time getting to know him better. And as you do, no matter how much things inside of you rage and things outside of you rage, you will have an anchor for your soul. You will be safe and secure in Jesus. Verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. There are, there are a number of, of things that come to mind to help us to not drift. Maybe the simplest is, Lord, keep me close. Uh, just a simple prayer, Lord, keep me coming back to you over and over again. Keep me to, to be the one centered like that, that piece of pottery on the pottery wheel. Read the Bible regularly. Not because that's how you earn God's favor, no, you earn God's favor by trusting in Jesus, and he grants you favor. You don't have to earn it. It's a gift that's free. But as you read, look for Jesus. Well, how, how does it point to Jesus? How does it show your need for Jesus? How does it show what Jesus accomplished on your behalf? And then find Christian authors who are centered on this incredible reality of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. My two personal favorites are John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon. They, and the reason neither of those men are alive today, but both in their own way, no matter what they're teaching or preaching on or writing about, they draw your affection and attention back to Jesus. Maybe a prayer for 2022 is, Lord, keep me so that I do not drift away from you. The whole idea of a church church body, a church family, is that we encourage one another. So if drifting is a, 
is a concern, and maybe in some degree it should be for all of us, bring somebody else into that. Would you pray for me regularly to help my, to, to really just fall in love with Jesus all over again, to see his love and care and mercy for me in a far greater way. When I grew up, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, a few hours away from the beach, Ocean City, Maryland. And so um, every single summer we were at the beach. And um, since maybe I could walk a toddler age, I was just drawn to the ocean and playing in the ocean. And my parents and grandparents really had one rule for my sister and I. My sister's about three years older than me. Her name's Brandy. And, and it was this, especially once we learned to swim. So we're elementary age. She's like a foot and a half taller at the time, um, known as Joey at that, that time. And the only rule is when we're in the water, don't lose sight of where my parents or grandparents are sitting on the beach. So they usually had an umbrella. Look at the red umbrella. Don't lose sight. And what would happen at the beach, whether it was high tide or low tide, you would inevitably drift up the, the shoreline or down the shoreline. And so when we weren't paying attention, we'd look up and you'd just see a sea of umbrellas and none of them were recognizable. And then we would get scolded by our parents or grandparents. One rule, one rule, Brandy, she, she got the brunt of it because she was the older one. So then she'd grab me and then you're fighting your way, you're, you're getting drugged back to the center focal point where you're supposed to be. Well, we're not much different than that. We have this tendency to drift and be pulled away and back and forth by all kinds of things. And we need each other to grab a hold of one another, hey, back to the the center focal point of trusting and worshiping Jesus. See, heaven and hell are real. They are real. When we die, we're either going to be in God's presence enjoying freedom from sin and pain and sorrow, or we will be experiencing the wrath and punishment of God for our sins. And in that clarifying moment, there is only, there, there's only one reality, that either you've trusted in Jesus while you were alive, and you're in that eternal bliss with the Lord himself, or you rejected Jesus and you're experiencing eternal damnation and punishment. That's a real thing. No matter what people in our day and age or throughout the centuries have said about it, it is true. It is, it is crystal clear truth. And the, here's the reality. Once we die, it's too late. The decision is now. And so we want to keep pointing people To Jesus, those of us who know Jesus, we want to keep centering our faith and our confidence in the Lord. If you think about just all the stuff we went through in chapter 1, and think about it as a pair of glasses, all those truths about Jesus King, he's in charge of things, he's made all things, the whole universe is in his hand, he upholds everything. Wear those glasses as you read about news on the internet, or you watch news, or you hear about news anything. Oh, I don't have to fear those things. I don't have to fear what could happen because I'm safe and secure with the captain and king of my salvation. Let's have the band come up, and I want to just read this last section one more time because we want to continue 
to trust in Jesus alone. If we do anything well as pastors, looking at Jason, one of our pastors here, we want to do this well. We want to keep pointing you back to Jesus. We want to keep drawing your affection and your attention to Jesus. If that's all we ever do, by the grace of God, we want to keep on doing that. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such, great, such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've experienced this great salvation. Let's make much of Jesus. Let's tell people about Jesus. Let's put our faith and our confidence and our trust in Jesus. Let's all stand and we're going to sing a song that's going to draw our attention to this hope.